Hello, listeners. Before you enjoy this free episode of Consensus Unreality, we are inviting you to check out patreon.com slash consensus unreality, where you will find several bonus episodes every month, hours of exclusive audio, written content, and this is only the beginning. Um, So do be sure to check that out. We also have a new merch item available at consensusunreality.bandcamp.com, a lovely limited edition tote bag, and be sure to follow along on our Twitter and Instagram. Thanks and enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 21 of Consensus Unreality. Uh, today we are joined, <laughs> joined, today we are joined by, what was I thinking there? Today we are joined by Eric Wargo. Uh, he is the author of Time Loops and the forthcoming Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. Uh, we're, we've been thinking a lot about all this precognition type stuff. Uh, I've been reading the book and listening to some interviews and stuff that you've done. Um, I noticed that the more you kind of look at this stuff, the more uh, it happens. <laughs> yeah. So just, yeah, even a few a few days of more intense sort of thinking about about this, like the dreams and all this stuff comes up. Um, well, we're all precogs. Right. And it's simply a matter of waking up to that fact. Yeah. And there are all kinds of reasons why we're not aware of it and Mm -hmm. why our society kind of redirects, our culture redirects our attention away from the possibility of precognition and helps us, encourages us to redefine precognitive experiences as something else. Yeah, so I mean, it's that's yeah. that's one of the my, that's the main goal of my yeah, especially my new book, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, um, which is coming out later this month. Mm. Um, awesome, yeah. Trying to, trying to help people awaken. Yeah. To that fact. Yeah. How did you first get into this sort of uh, territory? Yeah, it started with it really started with UFOs. Um, we were we were talking before the yeah we started recording about uh, my first UFO encounter in, in Philly in 2009. And it, uh, you know, it wasn't an earth shattering, you know, up close encounter. Uh, you know, it was just lights in the sky, but it got me reading about the phenomenon and got me, you know, and I, in my reading, like most new newbies do, you know, you read, Jacques Vallée and, mm-hmm. and realized that this phenomenon has a lot to do with psychic phenomena. And that was uh, a part of reality that I just didn't, I had a lot of problems accepting that at that point. I'm sort of a scientifically educated mm-hmm. person. I've worked in the sciences uh, much of my adult life and uh, I didn't have problems with UFOs really, but I did have problems with ESP. But the more I read, the more I realized, oh, there's really something here that's been kind of marginalized and suppressed, really, by our culture. 
And, yeah. uh, and in tandem with that, I was awakening to the fact that, well, I've had precognitive experiences. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it was sort of a, you know, both experiential kind of awakening to my own experiences and understanding them in light of, of the research, the, the great amount of research that, that's been done on, on precognition over the last century. Mm-hmm. It seems you had a lot of uh, exposure to psychology, like probably in your formative years. Um, did you did you have exposure to like parapsychology early on? Not at no. all. Yeah, zero. No. Yeah, my parents were psychologists. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, uh, my dad was a scientific psychologist, um, and I mean, they you know he didn't go around debunking parapsychology. It's just not a topic that ever comes up in right. a psychologist yeah. household. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I grew up steeped in that stuff in that world. Yeah. And yeah. then I worked and then for a long time, I was, um, editorial director of a scientific psychology organization. And mm. uh, so I've worked and I currently work with, you know, a lot of psychologists where I work now. I mean, I, I've, you know, I've been in that world for you know, pretty much most of my life. Um, mm. not a psychologist myself. So, so it really, your interest in, and really the beginnings of like merging, um, that interest came out of that UFO experience initially. Well, that's not the, you know. Yeah, not even jumping to conclusions there. I've been moving in the direction of, of, I guess what you'd call the occult for, you know, a long time by that point for probably more than 10 years by that point. Um, but, um, that was kind of what really steered me towards the paranormal, mm. I guess. Yeah. I noticed that, uh, especially in, in time loops, I haven't read the new one yet, of course, but um, there's a lot, a lot about Freud, a lot about psychoanalysis. Um, what, what do you like, you know, what do you think the connection is between psychoanalysis? Maybe like, and especially like a, seems like taboo situations and guilt and shame and stuff like that seem to like have a, a big impact on it. What, like, so how does psychoanalysis and stuff meet precognition? Yeah. Well, there's this, um, this kind of myth in our culture right now that psychoanalysis is, was debunked, you know, or that, mm. and that Freud is just some old white, <laughs> you know, white dude who, you know, all he thought about was sex and, and had these crazy theories that have been just totally, you know, thrown yeah. out as garbage. Um, you know, he was not a perfect guy by any means, uh, nor is anyone, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but his, his revolution um, with his book, The Interpretation of Dreams, which was, he wrote in 1899 and published it in 1900, I think. Uh, was really profoundly transformative and and very uh, influential on our culture, extremely influential on our culture in all kinds of ways that um, that actually psychologists are coming around coming around to for for you know for decades they just rejected Freud out of hand. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, especially scientific psychologists. You know, they just saw him as as the product of you know Victorian. Uh, whatever nonsense and they right. just really um, wanted nothing to do with 
his ideas. But, you know, all, you know, so much psychological research over the past couple decades has really come back to studying what he called the unconscious. Now, it goes under different names now. Sometimes they'll call it unconscious processing, ta uh, tacit processing, implicit implicit processing is, is a, a common term you'll see. Yeah. Um, uh, Im you know, implicit bias, implicit, all these ways in which we are influenced by thoughts, biases, whatever, feeling that are outside of the level of conscious awareness. I mean, that's, that's the unconscious that, that Freud, he wasn't the first to identify the unconscious. He, or he wasn't even the first to coin the term. In fact, the term was sort of coined by the, by the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Mm -hmm. But he, uh, Freud saw the, really saw in a way that his contemporaries didn't, the, how vast and important this domain was and and really started mapping it and started thinking about you know the the, the why you know why are are do we have this unconscious uh and you know why are certain thoughts or desires or whatever why are they rendered unconscious how do they come how do they surface in our lives how do these 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 unconscious thoughts, feelings, and so on, how do they make us ill? Mm. Okay. And uh, that was profound, you know, and that, that, that larger framework, you know, you've sometimes, you've probably seen the diagram of, you know, uh, an iceberg and the, the, mm. the, right. the, the ice, the tip above the water is sort of the conscious mm -hmm. mind and everything under the, you know, the vast uh, part, below the water is the unconscious. Well, that, which is sometimes glossed as Freud's metapsychology, okay, was really, really, it's a really important idea. And there are lots of different ways you can spin that idea and ways you can reinterpret it and so on. Yeah. Um, but that's super important. Now, my, my argument is that, you know, whereas Freud saw the unconscious as something sort of happening in parallel or in tandem to our conscious thoughts. Um, you know, this kind of buried, you know, there's like a person inside of us who, you know, we're not aware of, but is somehow mm -hmm. itself aware and enough to, to right. thwart us and undercut us and act like a trickster or mm -hmm. act like a, a kind of an imp um, that, you know, it's kind of a paradoxical construct. You have this this consciousness that's not conscious. Okay, I think the abundant evidence from uh, from the paranormal and specifically from precognition uh, suggests that you know what we need to do with that diagram of the of the iceberg is tip it on its side. Mm. And think of that buried unconscious as our future future consciousness, what we're not yet conscious of, influencing us backward in time, mm -hmm. retrocausal mm. influence. Right. Um, and that's what my book, you know, that's the argument that time loops uh, develops and, uh, and that I continue in the new book. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
where do you fall on like sort of, I mean, you should, I, I notice you go after young a little bit, like in the, in time loops. Um, yeah. uh, where do you fall on like sort of, I mean, a big thing today is like synchro mysticism, synchronicity. It's like, uh, do you think that's all sort of explainable by precognition or where do you fall with that? Yes, it is. And, and uh, yeah, the, the, the new book actually has a couple chapters uh, explaining why synchronicity, why, you know, the role of Jung in, in, in leading us to the point where we can start to study precognition. He was, he was, he was ahead of his time uh, in the sense that he, he knew that he could, he really intuited very well that new developments in quantum physics were going to be important in helping Mm -hmm. explain uh, what we would call paranormal phenomena. And uh, especially things like dreams that come true the next day and um and weird meaningful coincidences in our lives um he was ahead of his time though enough that he really didn't live to see uh a theory emerge in physics that could really account for these things um so he you know he struggled sort of with the help of his friend uh wolfgang pauli the particle physicist he, he he struggled with Pauli's help to you know come up with a come up with some kind of theory uh that would make sense of these events in in quasi physical terms and it never it never really held together uh even his book even his readings when you delve into his, his writings they're incredibly inconsistent like one sentence he'll say that this is a, a brand new theory of of reality to you know replace causation in physics and the next you know a few pages later he'll say well this is not a theory it's just a uh, a term you know it's just a label you know basically he gave us this really cool label uh, a really cool word you know word to use for these kinds of experiences um and basically gave his patients and his and people who who read you know Jungians that big Jungian mm. domain of, mm. of Jungians and New Agers and stuff he gave them permission to talk about a certain kind of paranormal experience without making a paranormal claim mm. okay just saying it's synchronicity you know and, it, right. and it's kind of nebulous what that means you know whether it's you know a, a psychological process or you're really talking about some uh link between what's going on in your head and, and archetypes out in the world or in the collective mm-hmm. unconscious, whatever. It's sort of nebulous what synchronicity means. And that is actually awesome because it, 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 it allowed uh, people to start writing and talking about what I call precognitive dreams. I mean, you look at the Jungian tradition, uh, Jungian writers, it's like they're full of wonderful examples of of precognition both dream precognition and also uh, a kind of uh, what is now called presentiment kind of uh, um or feeling your future uh, orienting towards rewards on an unconscious level um most most experiences that are called uh synchronicity can really be explained 
in precognitive terms. And we now have a physics, uh, the, the beginnings of a physics that can actually sort of account for that. And even a biology that can sort of account for that. And that's what I, what a lot of, of time loops is devoted to is right. taking the beginnings, you know, it's, it's still, yeah. admittedly, it's still, you know, there's a lot of speculation here, but, but, it, but, you know, we have uh, some pretty coherent ideas about what retro causation may mean that is backwards causation mm -hmm. on, a, on a quantum level. And we see every, every week in the, in the science news, there's some new, some new team working with quantum computers is showing that you can reverse the causal order in a computation in a quantum computer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That's really key. Well, on then over here in biology, the forefront of biology right now is quantum biology. All right. Showing mm -hmm. that uh, looking for, ways in which these spooky quantum effects are actually scaled up in biological systems. And uh, we have lots a growing number of examples of ways in which this works. And of course, the Holy Grail is to find it in the brain, to find mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the brain is, may in some sense be a quantum computer or some kind of hybrid, you know, quantum classical computer, in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's you know, a lot of ideas about how the brain may, may, may have all these spooky properties. Um, now, the people who are kind of pursuing that generally are not, they're not interested in explaining paranormal phenomena, they're interested in explaining right. consciousness. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not interested in consciousness at all. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think it's all a matter of the unconscious. That's where that's where the action that huh. you know, I don't care what consciousness is. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that in the process, they're going to, the, the end result is that they're going to find the processes that enable the brain to get, to access information in its own future. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be the, uh, the, the quantum leap, if you will, of, mm -hmm. of the sciences, you know, at some yeah. point in the next, I don't know, I like to think before I die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, so... Yeah, I'm being kind of a futurist in a sense about yeah. what, where we're headed uh, with this. So would I be correct in saying that a, a large part of the objective of time loops is, is creating a, an association of precognition with how we understand the mechanics of memory? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and that's actually, a, uh, I go into it much in much more depth um, in the new book. Uh, on dream work that uh, Freud was really, I think without knowing it or realizing it, he was really a theorist of memory, mm. you know, how memory works and how it works associatively. Um, I mean, he wasn't the first to say that, that memory operated on association, but, but he would, but his dream, his, his study of dreams, for instance, um, was really mapping the, the associative, um, and almost literary ways that the brain, you know, makes meaning. Okay. And, uh, the, um, the great, I don't know, the really interesting synthesis, uh, in the last, um, decade, I'd say in, 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 in dream science, uh, it was offered by a woman named Sue Llewellyn, uh, at the University of Manchester, who kind of finally 
sort of put two and two together with the, both the science, the neuroscience of dreaming that we know, uh, and this kind of forgotten esoteric um, uh, field or, or subject in history called the art of memory. Okay, the art of memory is the, the mnemonic techniques that orators would use to memorize speeches and legal arguments and books, whole books. Um, and it, it works by creating, uh, it works essentially through free association. You, you know, you take something you want to memorize, you know, what's the first thing this reminds this each, you break it down into elements and what's, what's the first thing each element reminds you of. And the result is this crazy bizarre image mm -hmm. and you string these images together and you put them in a spatial setting in your imagination and uh those crazy uh absurd surreal funny violent weird sexy images uh make it effortless to memorize vast quantities of material. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're doing this naturally anyway, and that's what mm -hmm. dreaming is. That's what she, she sort of realized, that's what dreaming is. I mean, we're doing the art of memory automatically while we sleep. And so that, that insight kind of rescues the Freudian model in a way. I mean, it, it says that, okay, well, Freud was wrong about the function of dreams. Okay, we don't, mm. dreams aren't a way of smuggling forbidden thoughts, you know, in symbolism, you know, like past, you know, getting it past the prison guards, you know, that's, that's not the function of dreaming. Mm. Dreaming, the function seems to be making new memories. Mm. Okay, but he was right about how they do that. And, and the, the, the symbolic transformations that that our experience undergoes in order to be become part of our memory. Mm -hmm. Now, what I find uh, incredibly exciting is that the, to get back to our earlier topic of quantum biology, the, you know, memories are made when essentially new or, or learning occurs. Let's just talk about learning more generally occurs when the, when synapses, new synapses form and the existing synapses change their, their, their weights, change their like propensity to fire. Okay. okay. That's how memory sort of is. Uh, that's it's how it works on a mm. level. Okay. Well, the best candidate right now for quantum computation in neurons are these structures, these little, uh, tubular lattices called microtubules, mm. okay, which have been shown to have uh, superconducting properties, which suggest they may be little quantum computers, mm. and they reshape the synapse during learning. So if, if, if neurons are full of these quantum computers, if there's, if the brain has, you know, hundreds of trillions of little quantum yeah. computers that are actively you know, reshaping synapses and so on. Well, right there, you have a potential mechanism for the brain communicating with itself across time. Okay? And though, thus, I see the brain essentially uh, what in science fiction is called a tesseract. It's a four-dimensional, higher-dimensional object that, that uh, exchanges information across time. Um, yeah, yeah we'll, just, we'll let that hang for a second. <laughs> <laughs> ¶¶
I mean, and then you mentioned like Philip K. Dick and, and, and stuff like that. Like, do you think, and you just mentioned sci-fi, do you think that there's, are there any other like really good examples of like, of this sort of, this sort of theory uh, written out in that, in that genre or like, I mean, it happened in Philip K. Dick's life, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, his life is a, is a he, he he was he was definitely a precog, um, yeah. and that is to say, someone who was aware of precognition, mm-hmm. operating constantly. I mean, his life was just full of, of synchronicities, and yeah, fortunately, he he wrote a lot. He was you know he was a writer, so he wrote a lot, and so we have this record. Yeah. Um, that's the thing in most fields. You know, I think precognition is operative in any skilled endeavor but you know soldiers aren't you know writing every experience that happens to them you know mm. athletes right. are writing every experiences that happen to them pilots you know martial artists they're not writing their lives but writers write their lives right mm. they're writers so um, i like to think of it as you know attaching a printer to the phenomenon of interest mm. and um and so he left us with you know abundant uh not only his stories and novels but and his massive exegesis that he wrote right. in the last 10 years of his life, but also um, lots of letters that he wrote to various pen pals. And, you know, they, and he's talking about his dreams and then he's talking about how the dreams, you know, came true. And so we have this record, yeah. he has wonderful record. So yeah, he's a wonderful example. Um, yeah. uh, and, you know, he, at time, you know, he had a million different theories about what was going on. I mean, he, he never settled on any one, you know, theoretical model, but, but one of his important ones that he developed in the exegesis was that time was somehow spiral and that, you know, things, you know, kept repeating. He had this idea that we were still living in ancient Rome, but that it Mm -hmm. it was disguised by the, the uh, stage set of, of 20th century America. Yeah. Um, and he, but, and also he, but he also wrote very eloquently about visiting himself in the past. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he, uh, even had an experience where, you know, he thought that he saw himself standing at the foot of the bed. And then later in life, he would think a lot about that scene and think, Oh, me right now, I'm standing at the foot of the bed. I'm talking to my younger self, you know, those kinds of experiences. Um, so he was very, you know, he was a, a pioneer in, in thinking about this stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like that brings up the question of like, obviously it's all, I mean, if the precog, the precognition thing, it's all us. Right. So like, or it's, it's, you know, the same brain or mind over time. Right. Mm -hmm. So like the question of like, who is experienced, like, who's like experienced, like, is there a conscious actor happening? And it's kind of like, that's like, is it sort of a paradox then? Like who's, you're not sending stuff back and you're not, not pulling things. No, but, right. but people who become aware of this then start to experiment, you know, like, can yeah. I send myself a thought? And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the uh, people I've collaborated with uh, on DreamWork, she, she's actively doing this, you know, she's actively right. sending herself uh, thoughts in the past and discover, and then, going back to her dream journal, and because she has this very detailed dream journal that spans decades, she can go back and, uh, and find out if, if it worked. And like, she's, she's had some experiences that are pretty uncanny. Yeah. And, and, and I think, yeah, I think she's doing it. I mean, it's like, it, it, unfortunately you can never 
prove this stuff. It's very right, hard right. to prove these kinds of things. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that once people become mm. are aware of, of, of this possibility, first you have to become aware of the possibility and then think and think about it, you know, right. and reflect on it and kind of meditate on it. And then, and then, and then start looking at your life mm. in a new way, you know, re-examining your life. And that's part of the aim of the new book. It's called yeah. Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. Mm. Because, you know, when you start working with precognition and thinking about its implications, you realize that, oh, the past, my past isn't like just dead and gone territory. I'm, you know, if I have a, a powerful experience today, that may have actually that may actually be influencing me in the past, you know, if, if only in a dream, but potentially more generally or pervasively, hmm. um, right. uh, just as some future emotional upheaval is, you know, going to influence me tonight in my dreams. I mean, so that you suddenly realize, Oh, I'm not like severed from my past hmm. and I'm not facing like, the future, even though I don't know the future and can't know the future, I'm at actually present. It's actually, you know, my future life is in my brain right now. Hmm. That's the implication of a Tesseract brain, right? you know? Yeah. And, uh, uh, and that's a super exciting and inspiring thought. And it sort of, yeah you know, it, it revalues your life and the lives of others, you know, when you realize that we're all these four-dimensional, mind-blowing beings. Yeah. We're not what we, you know, just who I, you know, I'm not just who I am, like, what, that you see right at this instant, mm. you know? Right. Yeah, I feel like that it's, like, very freeing, and then it also, but it also immediately brings the whole free will thing. And I'm sure you've, like, that's, like, your... I'm sure that's like come at you every time you talk about it, but well, I, there's a, there's a, the, it's addressed in the, in the new book, which I just got my author uh, copies of yesterday. Congratulations. So, uh, I'm yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm hoping people will, will, yeah. will it. and it's written and it's accessible. I mean, I know time loops, it's a, it's a, it's a thick book. This one is yeah. thinner and a lot more fun, mm -hmm. but yeah, it, I'm, I'm it goes into that. Yeah. It, it, we, it delves into, into the whole free will. Issue. Yeah, because I mean, I feel like yeah, that's like the first thing that when you're thinking about precognition, like after a few minutes, you're like, well, wait, like, does that mean that like I don't have any choice in what I do? Like, you know, um, but I, yeah, well, it's, sure I you have a choice, but it's and but if you if you replayed the universe from all the the initial conditions, if you if you replay the universe you would always make the same choice. Right. Is that, is that like the, the Nietzsche thing sort of? Well, that's one, that's one reading of Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are alternative readings I've, I've found out, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, that's one way of, of looking at it. You, you know, yeah, I, I have a free choice. I have a free choice to, you know, pick up my glass and, you know, take a drink of water right now. Um, but, you know, and it feels free, but in 10 seconds from now, that's in the past and it's unalterable. Hmm. Um, uh, and so, well, 
you know, you can't change the past. Now, that this is the thing. This is the key distinction. And, the, and there's a lot in the new book about, you know, when I talk about influencing our past and, and our relationship to our past, we're not changing the past. This is the, this is the thing that, 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 you know, science fiction writers love to talk about alternative timelines uh, and a popular idea in kind of pop physics these days is many worlds hypothesis mm -hmm. that, you know, in every decision point in nature, um, you know, things, you know, multiple universes are spawned. And so there's, you know, infinite parallel realities and blah, 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 blah. Well, that's kind of a cop-out, frankly. It's a kind of a way of escaping from the kind of conundrums that are presented by, uh, by choice in a, in a material universe. And, uh, and in fact, it's not very compelling even uh, in physics. Um, because if retrocausation explains uh, some of the phenomena seen in, in, in physics experiments, then the universe is not random. Hmm. The universe is not random and thus spawning every alternative uh, at every decision point. In fact, it's it's simply retrocausation. You know, the, the 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 seemingly random behavior of a particle is determined by the next thing that particle hits. Hmm. Um, so it's not what it was never random. So God doesn't right. play dice. So yeah. you know, I'm my money is totally with Einstein hmm. um, in all this. I think that that Einstein's really going to come out vindicated against <laughs> some of the more outrageous. Uh, interpretations of quantum mechanics, the Copenhagen interpretation. I mean, I think you know, mm -hmm. Niels Bohr was a brilliant, brilliant guy, but, but I think his, he, he really, I think derailed or slow or impeded the progress of quantum physics, I think, uh, by insisting that there's no reality prior to measurement. Um, mm. That, that, I, I think it's, you know, I think the answer is really going to be retrocausation, that me measurement, retro causes right you know what it's measuring and that that there and suddenly randomness goes away right yeah i wanted to ask you i've heard you speak about that anecdote before in terms of um particle wave duality which is like a sort of a touchstone for like the new quantum religion that gets transposed onto all sorts of anomalous phenomena and stuff um yeah. but yeah it's 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 interesting because we're always making that distinction between uh, the, the flux state between particle and wave, but you're implying that observation is embedded in the story of that object. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't believe in waves actually. <laughs> I'm, uh, uh, yeah, this is, I'm, and I'm, this is, you know, not ready for prime time, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I've got a, I've got a strong hunch that 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 waves are a uh, at least on a quantum level, the idea of the wave function, the idea that the wave function collapses upon measurement. Mm. That's a that's a it's a predictive fiction. Okay, it's mm. a fiction that helps you, you know, make predictions, uh, and you need it for that reason. But you can't reify it. It's not something real. There's not any, right. not nothing real there about waves on, uh, on a quantum level and you know interestingly uh it's pot and when and if that's the case then maybe even like elect in electromagnetism hmm. 
waves might be a fiction too. I mean, the idea of fields could be a, could be a predictive fiction as well. Right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Richard Feynman and John Wheeler, even I think it was even before the war, uh, they came up with a theory uh, called the Wheeler-Feynman absorber theory, uh, which was essentially a retrocausal interpretation of electromagnetic interactions that hmm. that that the destination of a, an electron or whatever is kind of part of the story of that electron. Right. Uh, and that it was a nice theory, and I don't think I don't know what was really done with it, but uh, but but some physicists have kind of taken that idea into a retrocausal realm, like. Uh, John Kramer is one name. Uh, there are a few others, but so yeah, I don't know how we got started. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, about... That, that has <laughs> some really interesting implications. About physics. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. How do you feel about the uh, the applications of of uh, pop physics and stuff to explaining the paranormal? Um, well, you know, I'm I'm of two minds because. I think it's often, you know, garbage and it's often hand wavy garbage, but you know, what am, what am I doing? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of doing the same thing. <laughs> right. I'm just, you know, I'm claiming to do it better, but the, than, than, than most, but uh, that doesn't mean I'm not writing garbage too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> History will be the judge, you know, mm. um, I, I'm, I'm, I think, Look, no one it doesn't matter what field you're in. No, nobody likes seeing outsiders to the field start right. come in and use use their terms and discoveries and <laughs> to do their own thing. Okay, no one likes that, and yeah. so I think physicists naturally have a knee jerk reaction against people coming mm -hmm. in with quantum stuff. But they're overly sensitive. You know, it's like I think um, you know not only does is quantum mechanics a very rich and evocative field of you know offering all kinds of new areas of realms of study that will transform our lives in the next you know centuries and we don't know how they're going to go so you know you can speculate all you want but also it provides important metaphors i mean think thought works through metaphors and it, it provided uh whole set of new interesting metaphors that mm -hmm. that drive our thinking even right. if you know for instance entanglement you know like any you know anyone talking about psi phenomena is going to talk about entanglement and how our minds are entangled and stuff like that well you know and a physicist will come along and, and you know after they're done having a uh, you know heart attack from you know, your abuse of term entanglement they'll you know explain why entanglement doesn't work that can't work that way and why there can't mm -hmm. be any entanglement between my brain and your brain mm -hmm. um uh but you know so, okay so that's not literally how you know something like telepathy may, telepathy may work but it it's a metaphor that's that enriches your thinking and it may lead to the right answer down mm -hmm. the road, you know? So I think also, I think truth progresses through error. So I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a lot more, you know, I'm pretty forgiving of, of people's errors and. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think in the, in the same way, um, you know, I see your work is making some new connections and, and reevaluations. Um, how has the reception been from the academic side? Is there, 
Crickets. Crickets, yeah. Hmm. Cricket. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, do you do you think that uh yeah, I don't know, how do you how do you explain that? Uh do you care to elaborate on that at all or I explain that by the fact that I published through a small paranormal publisher. Right, right, right. <laughs> and that my world is, you know, continues to be the kind of the this kind of paranormal fringe. You know, my the ideas and time loops are not, you know, they're they're not something that uh well at the time you know i didn't at the time i didn't think that that i didn't even consider you know submitting it to an academic publisher it mm -hmm. just didn't like possible at all um in hindsight i think it's you know it's something that that i probably could have gotten published <laughs> through an academic publisher right. yeah. but whatever yeah. that's that's history you know that uh I, I, these ideas are are fringe and people in mainstream in the academy are just very uncomfortable right uh, yeah you know even the way i write about it, i mean i think that you know you can probably tell just from you know the introduction of my book that i'm i'm trying to make a lot of different audiences feel at ease you know it's like <laughs> you know I, i'm not gonna you know, well, if you're a, a scientist or an academic, I'm not going to offend you here with, with uh, a lot of woo. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make my argument very carefully. Right. Um, and I'm also not going to like just dismiss science. Like a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people in the paranormal world or New Age world, you know, yeah. are inclined to. You know, I'm, I'm. I'm, my sympathies are ultimately with with science. I want you know I'm looking forward yeah. to the science of the 22nd century, and that's essentially what I'm writing. What I feel like I'm trying to get my hands on what that's yeah. going to, you know. Um, uh, so yeah, it, yeah that's I mean, just it's, so it's it's a yeah it's a not ready for prime time thing, but yeah, but yeah. yeah. So I, I hope that that soon it will be, and I'm I'm uh, I would like to I hope in some small way I'm I'm to help change the conversation around yeah. at least some of these topics i mean you know the, the yeah. idea of cognitive dreams for instance i mean there's there's such a vast truth gap mm -hmm. there um that you know on the one hand you have uh scientists um psychologists mostly um who just you know are appalled at the idea of ESP and just won't even consider it and just have their, but so many people report these things and they, and they, and the thing is the reports are so consistent uh, and, and, and so they're, they're just, there's just, a, there's a mass, a mass of evidence there uh, that, that I just think when it's presented uh, in toto, it's, you just can't ignore it and you can't do the, the usual, um, the usual things like say, Oh, it's the law of large numbers and it's mm. your biases and blah, blah, blah. It's mm -hmm. just, no, it doesn't work that way. I mean, I've got so many examples in the new book, mm. uh, you know, from, from people who record their dreams, you know, only like one of the, you know, it'll always be insisted. Well, people report precognitive dreams after the, the, you know, event they supposedly precognize or whatever. No, a lot of people record their dreams assiduously and then are able to point to subsequent experiences. And, and there's, there are real patterns 
about what kinds of experiences are precognized and, and how it works. Uh, and so uh, the, new, the new book is kind of an invitation to people to become citizen scientists. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that uh, I think that, that if people, enough people start talking about this, uh, sooner or later, some neuroscientist, some honest neuroscientist is going to like notice themselves having a precognitive dream and they're going to mm. go, right. I need to study this, you know, and that, that would be what, that would be what it takes to, to, to kind of, I don't know, change. Right you know, how people think about this. It's just, it's just so ripe. I mean, a lot of paranormal topics, like, okay, they're not, you know, it's, I don't know what it would take to, <laughs> to make people <laughs> uh, believe them. And part of the problem is that there isn't a real coherent theory yet for some of these things, but there is yeah. for precognition and, uh, and it makes, you know, and uh, all kinds of trends in various sciences are converging on, on, yeah. it would make sense. Uh, and so, I just, uh, yeah, this, that truth gap, um, the, the condes, the sneering condescension that you get from, from, uh, scientists when, you know, when they hear the idea of, of dream precognition, uh, it's just, it's, it's time for that to end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something, especially with the, with the dream thing, I've been thinking about this lately, like, uh, a lot of the, the data, I guess, for lack of a better term, in a dream is like a, a feeling, uh, emotion or something. And often they're like, it's something that you've never, it's a dream or it's a feeling in a dream that you've never experienced in real life, basically. The emotion is only accessible in that dream until you recognize it later in life. So it's sort of like, do, I mean, do you think that, like how, or like what is the data being sent back? Is it, is it this sort of emotional or is it like sort of, because in your, in time loops, a lot of it is a uh, reaction to uh, a sort of world known like events. Um, at, le at least a lot of the examples you give. Like well, it's reactions to your own right. experiences about that. This is the key, right. the, the, like, so this is central. In fact, I think it's the number yeah. one principle in, in my new book that, that precognition is not about events in the in the future that right. kind of generalized the future <clears throat> precognition is about your own future experiences and your mm. own future uh they're often your learning experiences so right. you know something you see on tv you know um uh i had a i had a dream on the morning of 9-11 that was about you know buildings that a pair of buildings that like have the same facades you know as the World Trade Center, and they were right. there were mosques in my dream, and they were situated mm -hmm. in a location in my childhood neighborhood that I specifically associated with suicide. Huh. Okay, now I didn't dream about planes crashing in mm. the building, yeah. but but there were these symbolic associations mm -hmm. to this major, uh, not an event, okay, that right. happened yeah. hours later after the dream, but to my like right you're understanding like watching the news about it like my yeah. my you know emotional interaction with cnn you know right uh two hours later so that's that's you know what what precognition is so is it emotions is it thoughts yeah. great question i don't know i mean that's 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 uh that's one of the things that we need armies of precognitive <laughs> out there 
to help answer. But, you know, partly, it's certainly partly thoughts, you know, um, yeah. uh, our, and I, I give a lot of examples in the new book of, of the way that our future, of our thoughts about some occurrence in our lives or some learning experience in our lives um, gets, you know, represented, pre-presented in a dream directly or symbolically. Um, uh, so thought definitely are future thoughts. I mean, I really think that the unconscious is consciousness displaced in time. So our mm. conscious thoughts displaced backward in time mm. are pre-presented in our dreams. Yeah. Um, but emotions too. I mean, I, the, I, in time loops, I sort of suggest that kind of the almost the carrier wave of, 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 of precognition is is kind of this kind of mixed emotion. Uh, I use the there's a Lacanian psychoanalytic term called jouissance, which kind of means pleasurable pain, painful pleasure. It kind of this this dual valence emotion. Uh, I I I think that that is often the case. Although I've come around to thinking that the even more powerful emotion that that kind of powers precognition in a way is amazement mm. um uh i yeah this is a, a topic i get into in the new book i think amazement uh mm. something is 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 often what yeah kind of determines what what we you know yeah we precognize in our dreams mm. i think yeah in my limited experience i mean i have and they stick out in my mind, the, the, the several precognitive things that just feel like these, yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's hard to explain, I guess, what, what it feels like. But mm -hmm. I think amazement is a good, amazement or, yeah, yeah it's, it's, one, it's something in, in that realm of, of, of word, yeah. Well, you know, more generally, you can just, powerful emotion. I mean, the, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't, you can define it in all kinds of ways. Uh, any powerful emotion, Hmm. Uh, is, you know, an experience that provokes a powerful emotion is something that you're liable to precognize beforehand. But right. I think that, that, that I've, I've noticed in my own life, at least, that, the, that very often um, these experiences seem to center on, on experiences that have a, have a, like where I'm rewarded, but there's kind of a little bit of punishment there. Yeah, you know, uh, a combination of punishment and reward, or something. Uh, one very common one, and this I think is operative in, in most premonitions, premonitions of disaster, death, that sort of thing. The, the 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 core thought that I think is being transmitted back in time is the thought, "But I survived." Mm -hmm. Okay, because it's often something bad happening to someone else, or something bad almost happening to me, but not quite. Mm -hmm. or something bad that happens, but I'm still standing. Right. Okay. Those, yeah. those kinds of situations, um, and they can be, they don't have to be threats to life and limb, you know, like a plane crash or a car crash. I mean, they can be like a minor embarrassment, you know, at work or, um, you know, just kind of relatively trivial situations. But when they're, but nevertheless, there's that, that kind of duality of, Oh geez, that was an embarrassing thing that happened, but 
you know, life goes on, I'm okay, or, or whatever, something that has that dual um, sense of surviving something. It's mm. uh, that's, that's yeah. key, yeah. and it, it and it makes perfect sense that if this is something that he that evolved, you know, if evolution is about survival, right? So precognition is about survive. It's about our survival. Mm. Yeah, that's that's yeah, it's so fascinating. So you don't think? Do you think there are just random bits of things that have no? bearing on like our well-being that is sent back just sort of like extraneously or do you think it's mostly well, they often seem that way okay this is the yeah. this is the experience that a lot of people have when they start recording their dreams and and paying attention to precognition they'll go well you know why did i have this you know why did i dream about this random you know restaurant or something it's like it seems insignificant well when you pay attention to the context of the experience that you dreamed about um, uh, you may realize that, oh, in the surrounding, like, context, temporal context of that, you know, uh, experience, there may be something there. And there's a reason why you may be dreaming of that, mm. um, that one thing. Like an example, here's like an example, this always comes to mind. And I, I never, I didn't, unfortunately I get this person's name. He, he came up to me after I gave a talk and he told me this experience and I, and, and I've uh, it stuck with me um, ever since he's, you know, he, he and some friends were um, at a conference or something and there was a, uh, uh, and the police evacuated everyone from the building because there was a bomb threat and they, you know, and the police said, just get out of the neighborhood, you know, Go somewhere else. So he and some friends, they were in an unfamiliar uh, city, I guess, for a conference or something like that. And so uh, they drove around a while in an unfamiliar neighborhood um, and and found a, a place to eat, a restaurant to sit at and wait, whatever. And he walks into this restaurant and boom, it, it was, he had had a dream about, there was nothing up but this interior of this restaurant, like mm. a couple of weeks before. Um, and, you know, but it was just, there was nothing happening in the restaurant. It was just this scene of this restaurant. Um, well, you know, if it, you know, okay, the restaurant itself was this trivial random thing, but no, it happened in the aftermath of, mm-hmm. uh, of an actual threat, right. you know, and it often happens. I've, I've since collected a number of examples of this from people where, uh, some, up, some, something threatening will happen. Uh, but they'll have a precognitive dream about some like trivial, random, uh, uh, relaxing <laughs> setting that, that they encountered after, right afterwards. Yeah. So again, there's that idea of possibly surviving something or the, and, the, and the possible relief that you feel of normalcy after uh, an upheaval. Um, at least that's my hypothesis hmm. about that. So I, I think in answer to your question, on the surface, it seems like just kind of often precognitive dreams seem like these random little things. But often, if you look at them in context, there's something more going on. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Huh. Um, have you done any looking into, or I'm sure you've considered um, like non-locality and consciousness? Uh, do you, you don't really give credence to that idea? Or? I, I don't really. I mean, I don't. I certainly, you certainly don't need it to explain precognition. Sure. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and 
you know, and this is a controversial area that, you know, people will be debating this for forever. I'm not certainly going to solve it, but I, I think a lot of, a lot of experiences that on the surface seem like they have an explanation uh, as some kind of non-local consciousness or consciousness leaving the body or whatever. If you sort of take a forensic mindset to examining those experiences, you often find precognition operating. Hmm. Hmm. Um, to take an example, um, and I've got some examples of this in the new book where I talk about lucid dreams and out-of-body experiences. Um, you know, I've had I've had a few, very small handful of out-of-body experiences. Um, uh, one of which was, I guess I've had four. First was when I was young and I wasn't thinking or you know, writing about these things at that point. So I, I can't, you know, all I have is my memory and I, you know, I don't want to speculate about that. But, uh, but one, of, one of the spontaneous experiences, um, uh, you know, was distinct out-of-body feeling experience, uh, which, you know, I woke up from. I, you know, it was a dream, but very out-of-body. Um, but then it turned out to be what I then did in phys my physical reality to go and confirm that out-of-body experience. Hmm. Yeah. And I, and there are like, there's a tracer there. In fact, I talk about it in the book, I won't go into it right now, hmm. but there's a tracer that like establishes uh, that, that, that it was, that I was actually precognizing this experience of trying to confirm hmm. dream. Right. So it was a time loop, you know, this perfect time loop. And I've had uh, a couple of others that were deliberately induced. You know, hmm. I, I, at one point, got interested in, in the phenomenon of out-of-body experience and bought some books on it and mm. did some, a lot of exercises trying to induce one. And it's very, it's a lot harder than, <laughs> than they make it sound, but I had a, successes on two occasions. Mm. And in both cases, um, I subsequently had an actual experience that Matt in real life that, that actually matched that out-of-body experience so i was able to show that this was this was an in-body this was a pre-cognizing pre i was precognizing an in-body experience in that location hmm. uh, right later in one yeah. case exactly a year later uh this is uh one of the things i talk about in the new book is this phenomenon called calendrical resonance which is that that dreams often are about events happening exactly a year later or at year intervals mm. okay uh, multiple years sometimes spanning decades but it's startling um and you know there's there's some way in which our inner calendars are are really attuned to dates mm. um and uh so like one of one of these out-of-body experiences actually turned out to be an in-body experience exactly a year later mm. um and the other one was an uh um, similar. It was actually sort of more of a lucid dream, but, 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 you know, I was precognizing something. I was a reading experience uh, mm. a couple of days later. So, uh, so, so my own small data set <laughs> yeah. Yeah. points, yeah. points to the idea of misrecognized precognition really. Mm. Um, but it's an open question. You know, I'm, I'm in the book is inviting people to 
you know, hey, pay attention to this possibility, mm, you know, yeah. and see and see if this may uh, change how you think about these phenomena or not. But I'm yeah. looking forward to reactions. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of angry reactions to, <laughs> <laughs> to that idea. Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, to use that explanation to look at maybe some of the successes of, of the remote viewing program yeah. and in, mm -hmm. under that lens, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you're right, yeah, because there are always so much of the of the best uh, from those uh, sessions are the people who like have that very strong um, confirmation later on yeah, that, that yeah. they were right. You 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 successfully right. matched the drawing you were supposed to. Right. Yeah, right. that's that's really funny. Um, to be topical, uh, what do you think about the new sort of religious movement of the simulation theory? Yeah, I'm not a. I'm not a fan. Yeah. The simulation hypothesis. I mean, it's this idea really appeals to like Silicon Valley mm -hmm. types yeah. who, you know, are easily turned on by technology and new technological ideas. But, you know, honestly, it's, it's look at the history of, of cosmologies Mm -hmm. You know, they're always based on the latest technology. You right, know, the, right. the universe was a was a big clock, and the god was a clockmaker. You know, back back when clocks yeah. were the, 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 the new thing, and then you know, the the the, the, the our metaphors for mm. metaphysics, I guess that's the word. Yeah. Um, follow technology. And uh, so this is just the latest iteration of that. Right. Yeah, that's my takeaway pretty much from that. We, we just did a, an episode on, on that. So we're kind of... It's, well, you yeah. know, what you mentioned synchromysticism. It's, it's synchronicities are often pointed to as the evidence for the simulation hypothesis. Because, well, right. how could these events right. occur if the world wasn't this big simulation? Well, people aren't thinking four-dimensionally. Right. Mm -hmm. This is it's very hard for us to think four dimensionally. And it just doesn't occur to people to kind of realize that okay, the universe is four dimensions, not three. And uh if there's that four fourth dimension that's that's helping these kinds of impossible seeming uh convergences occur, well that changes things, you know, that mm -hmm. that that makes it reasonable and and you can explain these things potentially uh without invoking something like simulation yeah mm -hmm. yeah it seems to not want to approach some of the tougher questions um in like quantum physics discoveries and and just impose this sort of like techno technostic new religion it's 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 like an easy answer it seems but yeah and there's and there's a really dark aspect to it too um sure yeah you know like uh you know there, it's been suggested that well you know if it's a simula if the world is a simulation then you know you don't actually have to simulate that much you know you just mm -hmm. have to simulate what what you're looking at is like a video game mm -hmm. and right. uh and and it raises the, the specter of 
you know, well, some people we meet in daily life right. could be non-player characters. Yeah, it's yeah. very well, dark. Just, you know, think, think about the eth- think about the 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 implications of that. If people started really thinking that some people were non-player characters, well, you know what? That's that's kind of the way people who commit genocides look sure. at yep. look at their you know their adversaries, right? You know, and you know that's that's exactly the wrong, yeah. <laughs> the wrong right way of looking at the world. Yeah, it's dark. So I see. I see it as very. I yeah. I see the simulation hypothesis is really um, uh, unappealing and mm. kind of potentially dark. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah. You would wonder, like with with uh, sort of posthumanism as well, which is you know tangentially related. If if the precognition holds true, people wouldn't people be having more dreams of like sort of being within computers? Like if that's supposed to happen within their lifetime, it would, I mean, because I don't think we've really seen that. Like, I don't know. That's <laughs> good question. Yeah, there's recently on like Twitter and stuff. There's sort of a meme going around of um, people talking about how like you never see your phone in your dreams, um, and I don't know if that's a hundred percent true, but what, yeah, what do you what do you think of that? What could that mean? I've seen my phone in my. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I have too, but like. Yeah, I've definitely seen my phone in my dreams. I, I can think of an example right now. Yeah. It seems like a, but it kind of like you know, it's like all these retweets of people, you know, so like, yeah, like the emphasis of certain things in dreams. I think the, I mean, it seems just sort of like a reaction to, mm. to phone obsession like trying to be like, yeah. Well, you know yeah yeah, yeah. i don't know because we spent so, yeah we spent so much time on it that <laughs> you wonder um i don't know well the, the, here's the thing we i precognize stuff on that i see on the media all the time mm-hmm. i mean uh, you know, that's my window to the world, but I'm not precognizing that media. I'm not precognizing right. the computer. Mm-hmm. I'm pre I'm, you know, having a dream where I'm actually in the picture that I actually, that I saw on Twitter the next day. Yeah. Uh, or they saw, you know, sometimes in a magazine or, mm. or, or whatever, you know, my, mm. uh, that's, that's the way the brain uh, dramatizes things. And that's part of part of the art of memory is dramatizing things, mm, and yeah. and the brain makes things memorable by making them dramatic and making them personal. So and that's another thing. You, you inanimate objects that you interact with will become people in your dream, um, right. because it ena- a person enables you to interact with it. Hmm. Um, and I think that's a, a, a I, I've, I've discovered over the years that um, that characters in my dreams are often actually representing uh some object Hmm. Uh, (laughs) yeah uh but but the the brain just wants to personalize them right Uh, dramatization is a a hugely important one um Hmm. that uh i very very often i'd say my most common kind of type of precognitive dream is what i call a twitter dream where because i'm on twitter I, i that's sort of how i engage with the news every day and I'm, I spend a lot of time on way too much time on Twitter mm. and, and, you know, every day there's some interesting story, something captures my attention. Um, uh, and 
very or some really interesting picture or very unusual picture. Um, and very often my precognitive dreams turn out, my dreams turn out to be about things, pictures on Twitter, but the, 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 in the dream, I'm like in the scene, I'm, I'm in there, I'm interacting, you know, I'm not, it's my world. Right. But, oh, it's a picture that I saw. And so, um, you know, we imagine ourselves into scenes. This, This is another thing when we, you know, the imagination is something that, that, I guess people who study the paranormal don't want to talk about the imagination because mm-hmm. then it sounds like you're debunking things. It's just mm-hmm. your imagination. Right. But the imagination is really key to, uh, that's our key sort of mediator to the world. I mean, when you read a book, you, you know, you like read a novel, you're imagining the scene. You're conjuring kind of a, 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 a movie. You're making a movie in your head of the mm-hmm. things, you right? Um, it's those mental movies that we're precognizing. Um, and we, and I do it with, with, with books and movies too, you know, it's like, I, I will, you know, dream a scene and then, you know, two days later, three days later, I, I come to a passage in a, in a, in a article or a book and it's like, oh my God, I, it, it's, I was dreaming my mental images of the conjured by that, that, yeah. that scene. Totally. Yeah. I wonder for like. I mean, I'm like a writer of poetry mostly is my sort of, and it, it calls into question, like, am I just like writing lines that I like re- read in somebody else's book later? Like, like this, like the fear well, of influence. That, yeah. That's, that's, uh, yes. I mean, that, that is, a, <laughs> well, but more, more often you're reading lines in your own book. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. That's the base yeah. of creativity, honestly, is your own, it's your own future thoughts. It's yeah. a, it, it's really time loops. Creativity is time loops. And uh, that's, that's the subject of, of the book that I'm slowly, slowly working on right now mm. um, is, is, <laughs> is about that. And uh, uh, I mentioned uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. I mean, he's perfect example of this. A lot of chapters is on Coleridge. I mean, he was, he was a precog, you know, just like he was, he was the Phil Dick of his day in a lot of ways. And um uh, his and it's demonstrable in his case that that he was precognizing when he was writing and yeah. uh, and that 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 I think is the basis of creativity. But it can happen that you can precognize something you're going to read in somebody else's work. I've <laughs> I've written on my blog about Phil Dick doing this. I believe that Valus. I believe that the source of a Valus was Jacques Vallée hmm. um, in his book. Uh, Invisible College, which hmm. I actually confirmed. Well, I confirmed with Tessa Dick that he actually went on to read some Jacques Vallée books wow. in yeah. 1977. Uh, and uh, Invisible College would have been his most recent book at that point. I, I feel yeah. that, that I mean, some of the the basic motifs in what became Valus right. uh, are are come from passages in Invisible College. Wow. And uh, and and the similarity of names just makes it, you know, I, right. I, I'm certain that that yeah, I think this this happens with artists all the time. Mm. Uh, I've got another example in in my new book uh, uh, involving David Lynch, in fact. Hmm. Um, awesome. So, yeah. So so that's what you're saying. That anxiety. You know, yeah. this is, I, I'm I don't know if you've read uh, the works of uh, Harold of Harold Bloom. Yeah, here and there, yeah. Um, yeah, the anxiety of influence, okay? Right, well, yeah. 
I think it works precognitively too. <laughs> yeah. So, so you can, you know, uh, you can be, your influences may be ahead in your future and then you encounter those things uh, and you just, it's really head scratching and worrisome. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, who is stealing from whom? And yeah. <laughs> how did this happen? And I think that that is actually a mechanism in, in cultural creation. Uh, so, so yes. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, it's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, huh. Have you noticed, I mean, this is a sort of change of topic. Have you noticed any like uh, pandemic precognition stuff? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah in fact, I've got some examples in the, in the new book. Um, yeah. I was able to, I, I finished it at the end of 2019, but uh, like one of the dreamers that I, uh, I work, I work closely with, um, she had a bunch of dreams related to the oh. pandemic uh, that I managed to sneak into the book uh, in its final editing. Uh, so, yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's such a, I mean, for everybody, like a, I don't know if it's traumatic, but it's something. And so I imagine. The problem, the problem is it, it sort of has, it's transformed our lives, but there's not a single, like, Mm -hmm. event like with 9-11 mm -hmm. that right. that is very like picturesque that you can you know that a lot of people could dream of the same event so um so you know you're you're dealing mostly with kind of personal uh personal uh situations that occur under lockdown and that's right. kind of um like this dreamer um uh in my book, like one of one of her dreams, she precognized the death of, or she precognized, uh, she had a precognitive dream about um, about John Prine. Mm. Three years to the day before, I mean, she was a John Prine fan, but three mm. days to the day she recorded this dream about his song "Angel from Montgomery," and three years to the day later, he became the first celebrity death from COVID nineteen. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Big, big deal and it's like that's yeah you know, stuff uh, like that so like you know the the past year has been full of these kind of surreal events around covid and around everything else yeah um so it's you know it's going to be it's not going to provide a single one event that a lot of people are going to dream about necessarily mm -hmm. um but yeah, it's amazing to have the data on that because I'm, I'm not sure I would have even remembered a dream about a John Prine song. Well, you have to keep records. Exactly. The, yeah. yeah, yeah. Keeping that's, the data. That's the thing. You have to keep a dream. You have to keep a dream journal. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dreams. Yeah. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> Do you think? Um, so I mean, a lot of this precognition is dreams. Is it? How often is it? you know, daydreaming or, uh, yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's, it's operative in waking life as much as in dreams. It's just yeah. that dreams are, are kind of easy. They're the, they're the easiest way for a beginner to find out about your own right. cognitive nature. Um, but, um, meditation hmm. is another really good one. Hmm. Any kind of waking, any kind of trance state, or frankly, any kind of altered state, mm. you know. Uh, but there again, 
how often do people record their passing thoughts? Mm-hmm. You know, right. record some random, you know, random train of thought or write down their earworms, you know? Mm. Yeah. Um, here we get back to Freud. The, the book Freud wrote after the interpretation of dreams was the uh, psychopathology of everyday life. It was this massive book where he's basically talking about all kinds of waking phenomena, like slips of the tongue and what later became to be called synchronicities and um, all kinds of other kind of waking things that we do, little foibles that we do and habits and stuff like that. Um, as similarly, symptoms of the unconscious, the same way dreams were. Well, same can, same can be said of precognition, that, that all these little, uh, these little things, little random obsessions or uh, weird things you do and don't know, quite know why, mm. there again, that's mm. precognition operative. I think you know, intuition is, is just precognition by another name. So when we're going, mm. when we're being intuitive, you know, whatever that means, you're engaging your, your, your precognition. And uh, divinatory practices. So, so if you do something like tarot cards or, um, or dowsing or, mm. um, or whatever, you know, if you've got some practice, some superstition or practice or whatever, that's divinatory astrology, whatever. Yeah. Um, there again, that's a, you're opening a channel for your, mm. your precognition to, to manifest and um you can you know i've i've played around with divination before and had like amazing like experiences (laughs) that totally that you know it's it's really uncanny um how well it works uh so yeah there are all kinds of ways i love meditation is really the best i mean honestly meditation is going to help you anyway because uh the more you become attuned to your thoughts and the, the the flow of your thoughts and and kind of get to recognize your thoughts. That's key because then you can kind of recognize when a thought is a little out of place, you know. Mm. And yeah. it helps you with things like hypnagogia mm. uh, on the edge of sleep, you know, mm. like learning to recognize. You know, most people don't recognize that they're in a hypnagogic state; they just slip right into a dream, you know, and they don't, re- of course, remember those states at all. Uh, but when you develop a habit of knowing, you know, watching your thoughts, uh, you can catch yourself, you know, you can catch yourself having a really bizarre thought, uh, you know, on the edge of, on the edge of sleep. And yeah. if you've got the willpower to, to like turn on the light and write it down, right. you know, you will be amazed. It's like right. the next, the next, that, that will, that, you know, that may well match something that occurs in your life in the next, next few days. Uh, mm. Hypnagogia is great. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's uh, even more reliable in a way than I think regular dreaming as far as being able to identify a precognitive hit with it, but it's so hard. It's just the, the willpower problem right. because you're so tired, you know, it's like, it's yeah. like, ah, uh, it feels so good. You know, like your, your mind deceives yourself to think, Oh, I'll remember that. I'll remember that. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it seems like a good uh, reason to get like a tape recorder or something to just well, like. Yeah, actually, like, some uh, people, a lot yeah. of people use tape recorders. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huh. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if we want to end it on talking about tape recorders, but well, everybody should start to keep a dream journal now. Yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I've tried. It's tough, yeah. but well, yeah. it's worth it though. And the more, right. the more, the longer, uh, the more dreams, the more years of dream dream keeping you have the more rewarding it gets right right yeah really start seeing uh how um how this shapes your life over the over the long term i mean what uh what i've found i mean i i fortunately i wasn't i didn't get interested in this until you know a decade ago but fortunately i've been keeping a dream journal for many years leading up to that because mm. just because I got really interested in Freud and Lacan in college and got interested in my dreams. And so I just sort of got in the habit of, of, of doing it. But a lot of, you know, a lot of people, you know, record their dreams and they, you know, whether because they're, you know, interested in their, you know, they do Jungian dream work or whatever, you know. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's never, it's never too late to start, start laying down that, that. Yeah. Dream corpus, basically, because yeah. yeah. uh, it it becomes it turns into a time machine. Is yeah. what it is, because uh, mm. you can really start to to see how you know amazingly uncanny ways that your experiences later in life were influencing you yeah. earlier in life. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, the new book is uh, coming oh, out soon. Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, okay. subtitle Interpreting Messages from Your Future. And it is available for pre-order right now, uh, wherever books are sold on the internet. And it will be in bookstores as well uh, at the end of the month. Mm. Awesome. I'm definitely going to pick up a copy and we'll encourage our listeners and friends to do the same. Definitely. Thanks so much for coming on, making some yeah. really, really interesting new connections. Uh, this is important stuff. Oh, this was a blast. Yeah, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, have a good rest of everything. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks All right. again.